0: So this is an interview for SOAS Radio. I'm Jacob Luce, and I'm here with Dr. Phil Clark. Um, I'd like to ask you first about when your research interest in Rwanda began.
1: I guess there's a bit of a family connection uh, to Rwanda in the sense that I have an uncle and auntie uh, who worked for World Vision in Rwanda at the end of the 90s. Uh, They were there at the time of uh, the huge Rwandan uh, refugee crisis uh, in in Eastern Congo. and so there's always been a lot of talk of uh, Rwanda in the family. Um, but also I'd done a lot of work on issues around reconciliation uh, in Australia. So um, I guess when I found out how Rwanda was going about uh, its work on reconciliation after the genocide, um, that sort of resonated with this, this family history. Uh, and then I uh, came to the UK in 2001 uh, to do a PhD And I had just found out that Rwanda was about to start using uh, 12,000 community courts uh, to deal with genocide crimes uh, as a justice process, but also uh, to try to contribute to reconciliation. So almost organically, I I had a PhD topic as a result, and then I've I've stayed working on Rwanda ever since.
0: I was going to ask you about your book later, but sort of leading on from that, in terms of the... So the question about where justice is done, where justice is seen to be done. Do you think it, it was at that period that, that you sort of had the inspiration for for talking about those kinds of things, or did that come later?
1: I think it was really out of the Rwandan experience that I, I started to think a great deal about the different ways in which uh, justice can be delivered for mass crimes, and Rwanda used a really unusual system. You know, no country until that time had tried to prosecute genocide cases with courtrooms that were basically being held under trees, uh, in courtyards, in these open community spaces where local people could see justice being done uh, in front of their very eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that experience in Rwanda, watching the gachacha process, that's the name of, of these community courts, got me thinking about how justice can either be extremely accessible uh, to people who've lived through mass crimes, or on the flip side, extremely alienating, um, if, if it's conceived of and if it's practiced in, in very different ways. Mm. These were issues that I think I had a very weak grasp of and until I started going to Rwanda and started traveling around the country over the period of about a decade, um, following these village trials and, and watching how everyday people were uh, engaging in that process. Um, that's really what got me thinking about the spaces in which justice um, takes place and, and how uh, justice can be delivered in a way that resonates with uh, participants and, and their everyday experiences or um, the extent to which it, it can be a very distancing process and, and, and a very alienating process.
0: Okay and then just to ask you you know you first visited Rwanda in 2001 a lot's changed since there. We're at 2019 now, 25th year anniversary since the genocide. I was wondering how you think the country's changed in the time that you've been studying it.
1: R- Rwanda's changed enormously uh, over those years. I mean, I remember when I first went to Rwanda, it was in fact in 2003. And, you know, this was only nine years after the genocide. Um, the country was still extremely tense. It was extremely raw. And a lot of people that I was speaking to especially in rural areas, talked in a way that suggested the genocide had almost happened the day before. Um, People's memories of killings, um, particularly killings of loved ones, was extremely fresh. Um, And the country, I think, was still trying to work out what direction to take. There was a lot of confusion, not just at the government level, but at the citizens' level about how this country could possibly recover uh, from the genocide. Going back to Rwanda today, what I see is a, a country that's still fragile in many ways. Um, 25 years after the genocide, uh, the memory of, of those events is still very fresh for people. But there's a renewed confidence in the country, a real sense, even in rural areas where people are extremely poor, that people are getting on with their lives, that there's a real pragmatism that drives many of the Rwandans that that I interview in my research, a a real sense that uh, 1994 was horrific and and the repercussions of that still resonate for people. But uh, the reality today is people have to get on with life. They have to go back to their farms. They have to produce for their families. And that pragmatism drives, uh, I think, people's desire to to try to get on with it. Um, And that's really remarkable. I think the Sort of desire of people to try to overcome uh, these terrible crimes and the trauma that, that people experience is is incredibly impressive.
0: Okay, and um, I mean I, I've been talking to Eric Moranga, who I know you you know, um, he's a genocide survivor and survived because his football teammates protected him, um, and he was talking to me about the civil society space in Rwanda. Considering what you've just said about how the, the sort of pragmatism of the country, the, the moving on, what do you make of the sort of civil society space in Rwanda as, as we see it today?
1: It's a tough civil society space um, in Rwanda. The, the political system is incredibly closed. Um, over the last 20 years in particular, we've seen uh, the Rwandan Patriotic Front, the ruling party clamped down very strongly on political opponents, uh, particularly political parties, um, media voices, and increasingly the NGO sector. Mm -hmm. And that's had a chilling effect on many civil society actors who are very careful about what they do and say and are very careful about aligning themselves uh, closely with with government policy. Mm -hmm. But even within that space, it is quite remarkable to me how energetic... um, Rwandan civil society still is. And I think this is because if you look at the country over the last 30 or 40 years, it's always been a difficult space for civil society. This goes back even to the years of of Hutu uh, government um, post-independence. So it's not as though what's currently happening under the RPF is historically unusual. What that means is civil society actors are really savvy about what they can and can't do. Um, they understand how to operate in that kind of political system and can still often use it uh, to their own advantage. One area that I'm particularly interested in is the role of church groups um, in Rwandan political life. And the Anglican and Catholic churches have had to, I guess, play a very careful game in the last 20 years because they were so connected to the carrying out of the genocide. But a whole lot of other groups, um, religiously, uh, have been able to carve out a, a space for themselves um, and are sometimes able to voice very critical perspectives on government policies. And, and I think that's, that's been really important um, to watch. So it is, it's a tough place uh, for civil society to act. Um, but a lot of those civil society actors are, are pretty smart about how to operate in that environment.
0: In terms of providing a critical voice in that environment, can I ask you about this recent uh, SOAS project with um, Rwandan academics and encouraging Rwandan academic work? I think there were two conferences, one in London and one in Kigali um, last year.
1: Indeed. Um, In some ways, I guess this goes to the heart of the same issue um, around how much space is there in Rwanda for... Academics, researchers and, and civil society actors to function. Um, over the last five years, I've been uh, directing a program um, in Kigali. It's co-funded by SOAS um, and an organisation called the Aegis Trust, uh, which runs the uh, Kigali Genocide Memorial. And what we've been doing is mentoring about 50 Rwandan researchers, um, really to... Try to address a major problem in the research environment uh, over the last 10 or 15 years, which is that uh, international researchers have been dominating uh, debates about Rwanda. And it's been very difficult for Rwandans themselves to get a look in. Um, And largely, that's because of impediments in the international arena. Um, It's because of the biases of journal and and media editors. Um, And it's about perceptions of whether researchers in uh, authoritarian states, in fact, are free enough to be able to produce high quality research. Um, My working assumption has always been that those researchers exist um, and can do really excellent work, uh, provided they're given the opportunity and the resources to do so. So this program run through the Aegis Trust has been Uh, geared towards trying to mentor and to amplify uh, the voices of of Rwandan researchers. We've had funding from DFID um, and and the Swedish um, Development Organisation. And what we're seeing now is those 50 researchers producing really important working papers and journal articles and and op-eds in international newspapers, tackling really sensitive issues in Rwanda around uh, ethnic relations, around uh, minority rights, uh, issues around memorialization of the genocide, uh, gender dynamics in the country, family conflicts, um, and also issues around media freedom and, and the democratic space. Mm. Um, and I think what that shows is, firstly, that there is some really impressive work being done uh, inside Rwanda. Um, but also that it, it is possible for uh, researchers to produce this critically minded work uh, without getting clamped down on by the government. Um, and we have our own strategies within that program uh, to ensure that that happens. Um, my ultimate hope, you know, that the objective of the program is that we will see many more Rwandans uh, start to publish their work and start to be heard internationally. And that's one of the reasons we then brought um 12 of those researchers to london uh, a few months ago really to to showcase some of the the best work that was coming out of that program um and it was a very unusual event i think it's one of the first times certainly in the uk that we've had an entire conference on an african country with only uh, african speakers uh, there were no uh, non african presenters uh, at the conference and uh that, I guess, was substantively important, um, but also we were trying to make a bit of a statement uh, about the the need to have more African voices um, on African affairs and, and really to to try to give African researchers a, a platform right here in, in the heart of London.
0: So I'm just wondering, in terms of your, the, these two strands of your work and, and how they come together, do, do you see a, a way that sort of the civil society academic space in Rwanda links to this sort of the space for justice and, and seeing justice done. Do, do you see those two threads coming together at all in your work? Or I, I
1: see these things as uh, completely linked yeah. um, in the sense that what they have in common is the importance of uh, locality. So on the one hand, I've been increasingly interested in justice that creates a space for local people uh, to have their voices heard. And this was one of the things that came through very strongly um, in the Gachacha process in Rwanda was that it was a process that tried to do justice out in the open uh, in 12,000 communities um, and didn't shut people down mm-hmm. and, and gave people a chance not only to give legal evidence but also to tell their stories about the past uh, in, in a way that made sense to them.
0: So, quite a free civil society moment, would you say?
1: I, I would. Um, and this happened within the boundaries of the state. Um, Gachacha was run by the state, um, but it created a, a very open environment at the local level, uh, which sometimes meant that Gachacha enabled public dialogue about things that the state is very uncomfortable about. I mean, one of the things I talk about in my book on Gachacha, which came out seven or eight years ago, was that even in the context of these open-air trials, many communities started to talk about crimes that had been committed by this current ruling party. Yeah. And the government had never expected uh, that that would happen when Gachacha started. But given enough time, communities worked out what they couldn't, couldn't say mm-hmm. um, and started to use these trials for, for their own purposes. So almost inadvertently, this created a very important civil society space, which the the government certainly had had not anticipated. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, how that links to my now work on uh, training Rwandan researchers is, is, is again, it's about recognising and bolstering uh, open spaces for dialogue in an otherwise very closed political environment. And I think there's sometimes a view, especially in the West, that in authoritarian states or in draconian states, every aspect of life is closed down. We have this very cliched, very undifferentiated idea about how citizens, in fact, operate in these very difficult political environments. And I think what I've learned in Rwanda over a very long time is that citizens are not entirely cowed by a very powerful state. In fact, citizens are often very savvy uh, about how to operate within that environment. And my assumption has always been that Rwandan researchers, um, many of whom study this political environment, are probably better equipped than almost anybody to work out how to operate uh, within those political strictures. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so they are the experts on, on how to live and how to sustain their work in, in that kind of environment. What they didn't necessarily have were the financial and institutional resources and the international platforms uh, to be able to to capitalise on those inherent skills that they have. Um, and that really has, has been the ethos of, of that Aegis um, program.
0: And can I ask you about the, the future, what you're working on going forward?
1: Indeed. So um, I, I've just published uh, a book on the International Criminal Court. So it's a book called Distant Justice, uh, The Impact of the ICC on African Politics. And in many ways, uh, it's a direct extension of the work that I was doing on Gachacha uh, in Rwanda. Um, because what I'm looking at in, in terms of the ICC is what happens when we try to deliver justice for mass crimes uh, from the Netherlands. Um, and, and this is justice that is uh, really trying to deal with crimes committed in places like northern Uganda and and eastern Congo. The inspiration for this book really comes directly out of my Gachacha work. Um, So you look at Gachacha, which is justice delivered in the precise communities uh, where crimes were committed, and now we shift to the ICC, which is justice being delivered from these cosy corridors uh, in The Hague. Um, And my book on the ICC basically argues that this kind of distant justice has been a drastic failure. Um, and actually, uh, the ICC could learn a lot from something like a um, It could learn a lot from delivering justice in a way that is tailored to the specific context of the places where atrocities were committed. So rather than trying to do justice in this flat-pack, uh, universal, one-size-fits-all approach, which is what the ICC has been doing to date, it could learn a lot from systems of justice that are geared towards... Uh, the particular concepts and the particular needs of societies, uh, as we saw with Gacaca uh, in Rwanda. Mm-hmm. So um, in many ways, I'm using the, the sort of gachacha inspiration to, to now criticise um, this, this huge uh, international justice industry, um, and the ICC is the latest manifestation of that.
0: And can I ask about some of the reaction you've had from people at the ICC to, the, to this uh, book?
1: Indeed. So I, I've had numerous emails already uh, from, from contacts in The Hague. Um, look, the book comes at a very particular moment. When, when I started writing Distant Justice back in 2006, um, there was a huge amount of triumphalism and optimism around the ICC this idea that you could have a global permanent court that would deal with genocide war crimes and crimes against humanity. And what I was immediately finding on the ground in places like northern Uganda and eastern Congo was a court that was in trouble. Um, And I was voicing those things 10, 12 years ago and getting very short shrift um, because the the dominant view was uh, that this was a, a fantastic enterprise and this was a wonderful development in international law that the ICC now existed. By the time the book then came out at the end of 2018, the international conversation had changed quite substantially. And and now it's actually quite commonplace to hear large criticisms of the ICC. Mm. Um, and in fact, that's been part of the reaction at, my various book launches is some people saying, look, you know, isn't this par for the course now? Um, You know, you're criticising the ICC, but everybody seems to be criticising the ICC. To which my response is, well, I've been saying this kind of thing for, for 12 years or more. But also, even though there has been a lot of criticism of the court, very little of that criticism has been based on a deep empirical analysis of how the ICC has affected the situation at the community and also at the national level in African states. So I think what my book is trying to add to the conversation is a field-based understanding um, in a very detailed sense of what happens when international justice is delivered into these very febrile, conflict-affected situations uh, in northern Uganda and, and eastern Congo. And, and I think that's what I'm trying to bring to the table is to say a lot of the criticism at the moment is very general. There's a sense that the ICC is failing. Um, it's been very obvious in the last five or six months that the court is in trouble because it's had these high profile acquittals mm-hmm. of people like uh, the former Ivorian president, Laurent Bugbo, mm-hmm. uh, the former vice president of, of the DRC, Jean-Pierre Bemba. Um, those moments have led to a reckoning with the ICC. But a lot of that has been very broad and it's also been very legal and very technical. Mm. I think what I'm trying to show in my book is that what's more important is the impact of the court, not in legal terms, but in the way that it's affecting and and undermining uh, politics in Africa. Um, And in order to understand that, I think we have to get on the ground. We have to start to do interviews and and observations at the community level and and also at the national level. Um, And so my book is coming at a time when there's much greater receptivity um, to criticism of of, of the ICC. But I think I'm trying to show a sort of a level of empirical nuance that has maybe been lacking in a lot of those debates up until now. I should also say that the, the book is trying to also be constructive so in the conclusion to the book, I've got a whole set of recommendations about how the ICC can take this distant justice that it's been practicing up until now and make it more relevant and more useful and more helpful for African societies. And part of that, as I said, is, is learning lessons from, from things like Gacaca in Rwanda and how justice has been delivered in a, a very different way.
0: I mean, is it also a moment where international organisations themselves are are generally being questioned? And, you know, we've seen, you know, Trump making comments about the UN and, and sort of international institutions like that. I mean, do do you see do you see the ICC as an, an international institution like the UN, or do you see it as as something separate that we can talk about? You know. Um, criticizing the ICC is not the same as criticizing international institutions? Or do you you, you see it as part of that framework?
1: I I actually see the ICC very much as part of this environment of other international organizations. And actually, this is one of the things that international lawyers get very cranky with me about is that I don't see the ICC necessarily as something special. I don't see it as separate. I see it as yet another uh, international body uh, that has been intervening uh, in Africa. Mm -hmm. Um, And One of the challenges that I have at the moment in publishing such a critical book on the ICC is that, as you've said, this is also a time when right-wing governments around the world are attacking international institutions. Um, This is a, a really nativist atmosphere, And unfortunately, and this is a very uncomfortable thing as an academic, is some of my criticism of the ICC is being picked up in circles that make me very uncomfortable. So for example, I've presented my findings out of my book um, at several uh, government gatherings um, here in the UK. And some of the most vociferous uh, support for my book is coming out of the Brexiteer camp. Because here I am critiquing uh, an international court that's based in The Hague, and this is resonating with the kinds of people who criticise the delivery of justice out of Strasbourg, uh, which uh, some of these actors see as, you know, subjugating the UK um, to to unaccountable uh, foreign interference. Um, Now, that was never the intention of my book, but it's something that I now have to wrestle with, that I had one set of objectives when I published Distant Justice, but part of my argument is now resonating uh, with communities that I profoundly disagree with. And I've just come back from the US, um, and and I did several book talks um, in Boston and at Yale and and also in New York. And and again, in in the Q&A time, especially in New York, some of the strongest support for my argument was coming from people who undoubtedly support Trump. Um, and and who see my criticism of the ICC as fitting very neatly into their overall criticisms of the UN, of NATO, and uh, of other uh, international bodies. So one of the things that I've had to do um, to respond to that is to start to differentiate my arguments from that sort of nativist argument. Um, And part of that is to say that I do think that there's something valuable in the idea of the ICC, that what I'm not attacking is the idea that we may have uh, an international court that can prosecute these serious atrocities. Rather, my argument is it needs to do it in a much more responsive fashion, uh, that it needs to take context seriously and it needs to be responding to the express needs of conflict-affected communities, for example, in various parts of Africa. Mm -hmm. So there is, in fact, a role for a strong international institution. It just needs to get... Um, savvier and, and more responsive to, to the local context than it's been up until now.
0: And I'm just wondering, can we can we see the hypocrisy there in, in terms of your work being supported by sort of the right wing press, for example, in the UK, the right wing press that also, with the recent Arsenal Rwanda sponsorship deal, heavily criticised Rwanda for for investing in, in a UK football club, uh, saying that this is inappropriate given that we're giving aid to Rwanda. You're making an argument that justice should be done where crimes happen and we should give power back to you know the communities where, where these things are happening. I, I guess, do you, do you see a disjuncture there in, in, in their argument that they're making?
1: No, no doubt at all. I mean, the right-wing press is just an absolute bundle of contradictions yeah. that, you know, if you look at the railing of the right-wing press against the aid industry, in many ways, this is a, an argument about, you know, wastage of money on local African communities that simply can't be trusted, Um, which if you boil it down, is an incredibly colonial attitude. It's a view that says African societies are inherently corrupt. Uh, They can't be trusted with the West's money. So why would we bother with them? At the same time, this is a right-wing press that, that sees national sovereignty as absolutely sacrosanct. And in criticising the European Union in, invokes the notion of colonialism and says that uh, the UK is in danger of becoming a vassal state. Mm. Uh, so this is a right-wing press that's very happy to be colonial on the one hand and then to critique colonialism on the other. So yeah. it's, it's I mean, and it's not just the right-wing press. It's, it's right-wing ideology, broadly speaking, gets itself into a complete tangle on, on these issues of colonialism and sovereignty. And, and I think my book uh, sort of falls into that kind of debate, that, yeah. that the right doesn't know what to make of it. That, you know, those right-wing voices that say that they're comfortable with my attack on an international institution clearly haven't read the book because what I'm then arguing for is much greater sovereignty and much greater autonomy being given to African states to determine how they are going to respond to their own atrocities. And that's the kind of thing that the right-wing can't tolerate. Um because in fact, it, it would lead to the undermining of international power. And it would mean giving a lot more power to not just African states, but also African communities to decide on their own terms, how they're going to respond to mass atrocities. And I think a lot of conservative commentators, when they fully digest what my argument is, are, are going to become very uncomfortable with that.
0: Have you had anything on the other side of the political spectrum saying that you haven't gone far enough in your analysis in terms of what we should do? what we should do with the ICC?
1: Yes. So one of the, I guess, tensions in my book, and I felt this even when I was writing it, was by the time I got to the conclusion, I'd almost reached the point of saying we needed to dismantle the ICC and we needed to fundamentally shift the entire terrain towards emphasising local responses to conflict. And in fact, I think that that is what I'm arguing um, that, that I think above everything else, we need to be thinking much more seriously about whether there is a role for international actors in supporting national courts in African states um, and other types of responses in Africa uh, that, that can respond to, to mass atrocity. But I didn't want to end the book on a note that completely dismantled the court. Mm. I didn't want the book to end with this idea that the ICC was dead in the water and and there was nothing we could do about it. And so in a couple of the places where I've launched my book so far, um, that has been one of the more left wing reactions Mm -hmm. is if you are trying to make an argument ultimately about African decision making and African autonomy, shouldn't you be uh, arguing that there is no place for the ICC and, and the entire emphasis should be on the local. I must confess, a lot of my thinking on this has ultimately been pragmatic, that I don't think the ICC is going to die. Despite all of the problems that I identify around the court in my book, there is too much international momentum behind this institution. And so I, I end the book by saying, yes, we should be focusing on local responses, but let's take it as a given that the ICC is not going anywhere, mm-hmm. and so we also need to think pragmatically about how we can improve its work. And it would be foolish to believe that it's just going to melt away and we're yeah. only going to have an open terrain for, for local reactions. That 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 I think would be uh, that would be foolish. Um, but but there was a there, there was a wrestling that I felt in in myself even as I, I write the conclusion to the book.
0: It's really interesting stuff. I hope you go and read the book. Um, thank you. I've been Jacob, and thank you to my guest Phil Clark.
1: You're welcome.